Ladies and gentlemen, permit me, please, to claim your attention for a moment. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Opposition Cast. Coming to you a little bit later than anticipated, I hope you'll forgive us. But to make up for that, we've got a bit of an extravaganza for you. Not just one guest, not just two guests, but we have three fantastic guests with us this week to discuss our topic. And we're talking uh, this week about the Conservative period in opposition between 1945 and 1951. So to get us in the mood, uh, let's go back in history and uh, remind ourselves how that began. In 1945, in May, Victory in Europe Day was marked to celebrate the end of hostilities in Europe. Winston Churchill was cheered by large crowds celebrating the end of that part of the Second World War. And whilst the war against Japan continued uh, through until August of that year, Politics started to return to normal. The Labour Party, who had been members of the coalition government during the war, left the government and an election was looming. That election uh, then took place on the 5th of July 1945, but the counting of the votes was delayed to allow for postal ballots uh, returning from forces serving around the world to come back and weren't counted until later on that month. The 26th of July was the date set for votes to be counted and for the results to start coming through. Churchill had made a very personal campaign. His reputation as a national hero and as a war leader was at the centre of the Conservative campaign and he went around the country being cheered by large crowds and was widely expected to win the election handsomely. And then the results came through, and they made headlines around the world. The election that resulted in a stunning surprise. The Churchill government overturned by a landslide. The Labour Party gaining a parliamentary majority of nearly two to one over the Conservatives. The wartime Prime Minister campaigned vigorously. Winston Churchill, who led Britain through its bleak hours, a world figure. He got the cheers, but the opposition party got the votes, and Churchill resigns. New Prime Minister, Labour Party leader, Clement Attlee. Mr Churchill flew back from Potsdam with his daughter Mary on what was to be almost his last day as Prime Minister. Mrs Churchill was there, as always, to greet him. Though defeated, Mr Churchill is acclaimed as a great war leader. As that last news report mentioned, Churchill had just returned from the Potsdam Conference of the three great powers, Britain, Russia and the United States, in order to hear the results of the election. He may have perhaps intended to return in triumph, but in the event it was his replacement, Clement Attlee, who returned to Potsdam to join President Truman and Joe Stalin. Instead, Churchill was now leader of the opposition, and was to remain out of office for the next six years. At lunch on the day after the result, his wife Clementine said to him that the loss of office might perhaps be a blessing 
in disguise. Churchill is said to have replied, at the moment it seems quite effectively disguised. He clearly had no relish for the role of leader of the opposition, particularly at a time when international politics was so important and he wanted to play his role on the world stage. But the Conservative Party had been comprehensively defeated and now faced an uphill struggle to recover its fortunes. To discuss how they did that, I'm joined by three guests, as I said, um, which I'm very pleased about. Firstly, Dr Michael Kandaya, my colleague at King's College London, who is a, a scholar who has worked on the diaries of a senior figure from this period of time, Lord Woolton, who had been a minister during the wartime government and then was appointed as chairman of the Conservative Party in 1946. Later on, I'll be speaking to Stephen Parkinson, Lord Parkinson, about another of the senior figures who played a major role during this opposition period. Uh, that's Rab Butler, who was the chairman of the Conservative Research Department and very much in the lead on policy. And finally, I'll then be speaking to Catherine Carter, who is the curator of Chartwell, the home in Kent that Churchill bought before the war and where he was perhaps at his happiest. I'll be speaking to her about Churchill's working methods and about some of the stories of those who actually worked with him during this period uh, in opposition and indeed an earlier period when he was out of office uh, and basing himself there. But first up is my conversation with Michael Kandaya and before we got on to talking about Lord Walton and his role in the rebuilding of the Conservative Party we returned to that 1945 election and I asked him, given the expectations of commentators and of the participants themselves that the Conservatives would romp home to victory, whether it was a significant shock to Churchill himself to find himself out of power. Yes, it, it was a shock to everybody. Uh, in, in fact, he felt it was like getting kicked in his stomach. He, this is what he told Rab Butler. So it, it was an enormous shock to the vast majority of of Conservatives. Now, it also has to be said that not everybody thought that the Conservatives would romp to victory. Uh, certainly, Lord Walton knew or was pretty sure they would they wouldn't win, but he was he was sort of unusual. So it, it takes them some time uh, to actually derive a few narratives as to why they you know, why they lost in, in such large numbers. We all, I mean, for instance, we have to remember that uh, fairly significant party leaders such as uh, Harold Macmillan lost their seat. They also lost very traditional, you know, sort of Heartland seats, Chiswick and many other Southern uh, English seats. So this was an enormous shock to them. And really pretty soon after the 45 election, they begin asking themselves what happened and they eventually begin devising some series of answers. And now one of the answers which becomes quite important for them is that there was a problem with the party organisation. And there is some truth to this in the sense that the Conservatives during the Second World War had allowed the organisation to wither. There's, there is very little doubt about that. The local constituencies had 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 really largely withered, and 
the activities of central office also had not necessarily come to a standstill, but hadn't been what they were in the pre-war period. So I think it's on that organisational challenge that um, your hero enters the uh, the story, as it were. Lord Wilton uh, is then appointed as um, party chairman uh, with a, a mission to revive the party's uh, organisation uh, in the country and, and at central office. Um, h- how does he enter into the picture? How, how is he appointed? The His name was alighted on at some point after 1945. It must be remembered that Wilton wasn't actually a party member at this point. He was still a non... He had, he had served the war as a non-party member and he had remained really pretty much at arm's length with the Conservative Party. So through a, a whole process of thinking, how do we rejuvenate the party organisation, they alighted in the name of Lord Wilton. Now, uh, it, it seems very clear they also were thinking in terms of fundraising, how they could fundraise. But they, I think they were also looking for a new face, somebody that hadn't been linked to the party pre-1939. Now, why not, why that's important was that there was still the guilty men um, stain on some members of the party. That is to say, people who had linked some members of the Conservative Party with appeasement. So they had to be quite careful who they appointed. So Wilton was increasingly a very attractive figure because he was not a member of the party before, had been nevertheless a very successful wartime minister. He was also very considered a very successful person. And so when he eventually is appointed Conservative Party chairman in 1946, this was seen to be a, you know, sort of an all round bonus because they were getting somebody who was successful, who had been a successful minister, who was also much liked in the country. And this was considered a very good thing. So this was one of the stages uh, in the early, uh, you know, sort of rebuilding of the Conservative Party and the identification that something needs to be done, and certainly from the organisational point of view, something needed to be done. In this, they were actually quite lucky that really post-1945, Churchill was willing to listen to what other people told him to take advice. So he was certainly taking advice from a number of people within the party. So the appointment with Walton, I would, I would say, is very important for this reason it signalled that the party would be going along particular directions and would be changing. So if we put the focus sort of back to Churchill himself, mm-hmm. as a, a leader he was very much a man of action and certainly a man in, in the wartime very used to having mm-hmm. his hands on the, the levers of power. Um, how did he personally react to the powerlessness of opposition and this very changed uh, environment because I think as well that the notion we have now of a leader of the opposition being very active and um, being a very full-time figure it wasn't necessarily the view that people had at the time about what an opposition should do it was seen perhaps more as a part-time occupation but even so as a, as a leader he, he, he must have found it quite difficult to, to react to that. Yes, uh, Churchill did find it very difficult in the beginning, as indeed anybody would. Uh, I mean, first of all, there's a sense of personal rejection. Uh, obviously, it was a very personal rejection, uh, largely because it must be remembered that the the campaign was very much a personalised campaign. 
So it was, you know, it could be interpreted and indeed to, to some extent it was interpreted by Churchill as a personal uh, slight. So there was that. But it also has to be said that Churchill, once the war ended, he got in, he appears to have gotten to his head rather early that he needed to get the narrative of the Second World War and how it was fought. He needed to form that narrative very, very quickly. So he, he begins to understand quite early that that is probably his big moment in history. I mean, particularly once he had got accustomed to the idea that he lost the election what I could see relatively quickly, he was clearly hurt by it, but he he, he clearly felt he had to move on. And so one of the ways he moved on was to write the history of the Second World War. So his memorable tomes, as I'm sure many of us have read, were conceived during this period. And he really spent much of his time as uh, in, in opposition writing those books. It might seem odd to us today that this is the case, but I think, again, th th there was a difference to the way the party leaders led and the party leaders thought of themselves, but also who did what and how it all joined together. I think it was it was a very different world. So Churchill went off and decided that the, the, the better idea would be to write the books. So in that way, he allowed other people to get on with things. And I think this was his own way of coping with the defeat. And what about the party itself? I mean, Churchill, obviously, as you say, was um, spending a lot of the time writing his history of the Second World War. Uh, he was also traveling around the world, receiving uh, sort of honorary degrees and uh, the freedom of various cities as a, as a sort of um, international statesman and war leader. What about the party that was sort of left back in Westminster doing the day job of um, opposing the government? Who was it who ended up having to, to shoulder most of the burden and, and, and what did they feel about it? It must have been slightly frustrating for them. Yes, Churchill's withdrawal, uh, it, it's, there was, it was a mixture of frustration and relief. Uh, and the reason for a bit of that is that uh, most Conservatives, or certainly Conservative MPs, didn't necessarily feel that Churchill was a particularly good leader. And other, other grandees within the party sort of had very similar views. Now, it must also be seen in terms of time period. So in the after, in immediate aftermath of the general election, pretty much into early 1946, there was a sense, there was a bit of self-recrimination and just not necessarily knowing what to do. So uh, what's, what's very interesting about the 1945 party conference is that from what we know of it, people were pretty angry uh, and also there was questioning of the way the party had, you know, the representatives of the party in front of them, you know, there was a sense that they had failed them. But by the time, you know, sort of the party got its act together in really early 1946, these are the various leaders. And when you get to the appointment of Walton, which is about the middle of the of 1946, things had tended to calm down. Now, the the people that were important at this point uh, was the role of, of Rab Butler. Now, Rab is, is ex extremely important because he's going to be the person who's going to think up what is a new, what is the party after 1945. But there are other people involved as well. So there's Macmillan who is, is there, quite a number of others. And so th there is a sense by the time you get to 1946 that the party needs to be reshaped. This is pretty much right across the parliamentary party, but the other bits of the party, the party grandees as well, 
they begin to see that the party needs to be presented in a particular sort of way. So it, one of the things that Wilson spends a lot of his time doing is actually thinking about how he can rejuvenate the party at a local level. Uh, and the other people, such as Butler and others, begin to think in terms of how do you give the party a, a rejuvenated intellectual framework. So, for instance, by the time you get to 1947, the broader leadership is up, uh, believes it has the way forward. So Wilson begins talking about things like the Wilson Fighting Fund and the membership drive. This is when the, the Conservatives make a massive membership drive and is very successful, you know, the uh, enrollment of, of a million new members and so forth. So that goes on on one side. And on the other side, people like Butler and others begin thinking in terms of the Industrial Charter. The Industrial Charter is the best known charter, but there were plenty of other charters. There was the Workers' Charter, which is often forgotten. There's also the Women's Charter, which is sort of less understood. And the one that's probably people forgotten the most about is the Empire Charter. Something they drop, by the way, quite quickly, because as things move on, the aspects of empire go away quite quickly. So the party rejuvenation comes from a number of different places. And it also has to be said that it's not that Churchill wasn't informed of what was going on. It's just that he wasn't always an active participant. So when we're looking at the Industrial Charter, for instance, and the construction of the charters in general, Churchill was certainly informed about them. It, indeed, it's very clear that the people who were drafting the, the charter sort of were thinking in, in terms of writing in Churchillian English, uh, which, you know, they'd pass on to Churchill. Churchill would sort of say, fine, make a few changes here, there. Very, very cosmetic. Uh, but these were actually quite important moves. And I think that the good thing about Churchill is that he fundamentally approved of it all, even though he didn't participate in it very deeply himself. So he took a, a fairly hands-off approach, but he certainly knew what was going on. And can we talk a little bit about his relationship with his de facto deputy, Anthony Eden? Um, mm. He and Churchill were very close in terms of their working relationship, but most of the day-to-day -day work of opposition fell to Eden, who by this time probably already was feeling slightly frustrated about his his role as the sort of the anointed successor and, and deputy. What do you think was the key to their relationship? Was it a productive working partnership or, or was it already fraught as it was later on with, with tension? The, the relationship with Eden during the period in opposition is a, is a complicated one. I think less uh, fraught, shall we say, than in the 51 period, 51-55 uh, period that is, uh, for a couple of reasons, and one of which is that uh, Churchill is so absent. So it is frustrating for Eden because... Churchill is absent, but at the same time, this allowed Eden opportunities. So I think for Eden's perspective, that was both a good and a bad thing, but it was a good thing in the sense that it allowed him to be a very obvious, the successor to Churchill and the person who was the deputy and so forth. And for him to do things was very convenient for him to be uh, for Eden. But it was nevertheless frustrating for Eden uh, because in some cases you did need Churchill to intervene and vary or just say what was the way forward. And that was sometimes difficult to get because Churchill was not physically around very often. There, there is some discussion in 1947 
but uh, you know between some of the party leadership that you know is it time for churchill to go given that he is so absent perhaps it's time to go you know perhaps he's not as popular as he had uh, it really was etc cetera, etc cetera. and once they sort of come around to the view that really they cannot get rid of churchill for a whole variety of reasons including the fact that he had been for better or for worse a very important national figure during the war and in that immediate post-war period because of what was happening in the more international arena they also needed him there because he was he was really towering above them there was no way around that so this was something which not only Anthony Eden but others thought about it's always difficult to manage the party without the the party leader actually always being there but at the same time I think a lot of them felt a bit relieved because they could get on with things and just finally I think the the period 45 to 51 is is held out now as being a a prime example of a successful opposition where a party that has gone down to a landslide defeat in one election um, comes back quite a, a long way at the next election five years later and then 18 months after that is is then back in power but that kind of discounts the the other side of the equation about whether the government um, itself was was failing and and so on and it's this age-old question about whether uh, the opposition wins the election or whether the government loses it in terms of this period from 45 to 51 what's your sense of the balance there how much of it was was down to a successful resurgence of the conservative party and how much of it was the failure of the Attlee government? Yes, did the Attlee government actually fail, or did the Conservatives, you know, win the 51 election? Now, it should be remembered, the 51 election, the Conservatives don't win the poll. I mean to say they don't win the popular vote. They win the largest numbers of seats. So that's something to keep in mind. So certainly from the point of view of party leaders like Wilton and others, they actually began operating on a, on a, on a strategy of winning seats rather than the general poll, which of course is absolutely what happened in 1951. They began understanding that really the Labour Party hadn't really failed and it wasn't necessarily going to fail in terms of its policy options. And again, if we look at the support for the Labour Party or the Attlee government, it, it really didn't fail, uh, you know, no matter what one may say. And this was not for want of trying, it must be added. Uh, you know, sort of they were they were criticised, for example, for not building enough houses. They were criticised for the you know the continuation of food shortages. They were con- they were criticised for austerity. But if you looked at the support for the party in terms of when people went to vote in fifty and fifty one, it's very clear that they hadn't failed. I mean, people voted for them in larger numbers than they did the Conservatives. But what the Conservatives were able to do is that they were able to galvanise their own base, which I think was very important, which wasn't there in 1945. And actually, that is something which really, I would argue, provides them an edge, that they they galvanise their own base and they got people to vote in particular constituencies, which pushed them over the edge. It's not so much that the Labour Party has failed. In some ways, we could argue that's what's astonishing about the 45-51 Labour government. You could say that in many metrics, it didn't fail. It's just the Conservatives tuned their response in opposition in particular ways to win, quite cleverly, I would argue. And, I mean, just to sort of round off, Mm. um, talking about, we began talking about Lord Walton. 
I wonder what what it was that first sort of attracted you to look at his his life and work. Is he someone that perhaps has been a bit forgotten by history and needs to be reevaluated? Uh, yeah, what got me interested in, in Lord Wilson? Uh, I'm ashamed to say, uh, for uh, reasons which have not much or that much to do with academia, uh, I know the grandchildren uh, extremely well. Uh, and I can always remember the 19, uh, 1987 general election when uh, Margaret Thatcher won her third term. And various grandchildren sort of said, well, you know, Grandpapa has been quite forgotten by history. And indeed he had. So they had very mixed feelings about that. So I, I was, I knew the grandchildren, number one, that was very important. I had enormous support from them. And of course, I knew that there was a, an established archive in the Bodleian, but I also knew that the family had archives, which I would have access to. So I would be able to construct you know, research into an area uh, which I would find interesting. The other thing that also has to be said that I was, I got interested in Wilson partly because as I got to know him, I found there were interesting things about him. First of all, he was a very unusual person in, in conservative terms, certainly mid-century conservatives. He was not like any other conservative that I'd come across. He didn't go to a public school. He you know, wasn't educated in either Eden or Harrow or any of the other schools. He went to Manchester Grammar School. He uh, didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. He went to the University of Manchester. He was also a trained economist. Uh, I was also a trained economist. My first degree is in economics, not in history. So I, when I began exploring him and particularly his early ideas as a young man, certainly at the ages that we were at the time, I actually saw things in him that I could identify with. And I suppose that helped a lot. So that was where it started. It also has to be said, we were, we were talking in terms of in the 1980s, i.e. my age and interest cohort, we were very interested to see what was the story, what was really going on in the, with, in the Conservative Party in 1945. Had they just accommodated to Labour? Had they just, for example, as many people think, uh, you know, were they just interested in what, what, what is now, uh, for better or for worse, to be called the consensus? And I was very doubtful about that. And I also wanted to see whether this was true. And what I have argued in other things I've written, this is a misunderstanding of what was going on. So I was I was quite interested to unpick some of these ideas when I was doing my research 30 plus years ago. And that's really, you know, sort of con has continued. And uh, again, with the diaries, what was interesting about the diaries is that to see what he was trying to do during the war. And again, we can see some of the uh, notions that he was talking about. So, for example, the welfare state, people assume that the Labour Party puts the welfare state into being the way it does. Well, actually, welfare was and the welfare state was being discussed a lot earlier. And certainly it was being discussed in the second during the Second World War. People forget that the, the the white papers were, you know, produced by a coalition government, which the Conservatives and indeed Lord Wilson were all very much part of. So, you know, it's a, I was interested in that more complex story, which I think has been uh, enormously interesting to unpick over the decades, literally, that I've been having to deal with Lord Wilson. It's very odd to, in some ways, to deal with somebody over a very significant chunk of one's own life uh, with a man who is, whom you've never met and who's also dead, but you, you're dealing with his grandchildren very often. So it's been fascinating for that reason. Dr. Michael Kandaya there talking to me about the role of Lord Walton.
in the successful conservative opposition from 1945 to 51 and their return to office at that point. As well as Lord Wilton as chairman of the Conservative Party, another significant figure who we mentioned during the course of uh, that interview was Rab Butler. Uh, Rab Butler was chairman of the Conservative Research Department and was at the heart of driving most of the policy initiatives that were developed uh, during those years of opposition. To discuss his role and also to give his own reflections on this period of Conservative opposition, um, I was joined by Stephen Parkinson, uh, Lord Parkinson of Whitley Bay, who, as well as being a peer of the realm and now a government whip in the House of Lords, is also director of the Conservative History Group. He's taken a particular interest over the years in studying Rab Butler, um, so I began by asking him what it was that attracted him to study that particular figure and what his significance is to the Conservatives during this period. So I became interested in, in Rab Butler when I was an undergraduate. I did my undergrad dissertation on, on Butler and the Conservative Research Department uh, in opposition, which uh, was a rare instance of a history degree leading straight into employment because um, having been in touch with CRD to ask for access to the, the papers, uh, they, they said, well, actually, we're hiring ahead of what was the expected uh, 2005 general election. So I went to go and work in CRD. Um, but I, I just, I think Butler was an intellectual in politics, uh, interested in both ideas and in practical retail policy, which which is rather rare. And that that extraordinary resuscitation of the Conservative Party after the, the crushing defeat of 1945, in 1950, the party comes very, very close to, to, to regaining power after after a single term, which, which is extraordinary. And of course, at the time I was an undergraduate, uh, the Tory party was struggling to perform the same trick after 1997. So I, I was interested in, in, in how the Tories had achieved that. And it was, you know, seemed to me and still does that Butler was absolutely central in that, uh, that effort through the work he did in policymaking and uh, through the research department. And the Conservative Research Department um, had existed um, prior to 45. Obviously, it was established, um, as we both know, um, by Neville Chamberlain in 1929. But it was very much reconstructed and, and um, sort of revived by, by Butler in, in 45. What was the background um, to that? Was that his instigation? And what sort of role did that give him? It gave him sort of control over a large amount of policy. Um, was, was that an opportunity that he grabbed? It, it was. I mean, so Butler was was rare. He was the only senior Tory who was pessimistic about the 1945 election in advance. He, he thought the Tories would lose. and He'd worked at the Ministry of Labour uh, for a period at the end of the war, so he was probably more in touch with working people and, and organised labour and, and the opinion of the country than than most. He was, uh, and CRD had been had been wound down like lots of institutions in the war and really was a, a skeleton staff. So uh, it needed to be resuscitated and, and, and restaffed. And Butler was, was ideally disposed to it. He, he was quite an academic. He came from a long line of, uh, of dons and headmasters and masters of colleges and was very academically able himself. He'd, he'd got a, a double first at at Cambridge in history and modern languages. So he, he created a, an academic powerhouse in, in CRD, hiring lots of brilliant and 
bright people who uh, served in the war or you know, were, were looking to come into politics. I mean, this is the era where Enoch Powell and Reggie Maudling and Ian McLeod were working in CRD and its associated parliamentary secretariat. So he, he, he hired bright young people uh, and having come into politics at an early age himself, he was 29 when he was uh, elected, he uh, he was keen to you know to give a leg up to to bright uh, and ambitious young young people as well. So he he hired lots of people from straight from university and created the, a sort of a donish atmosphere. Peter Tapsell, who worked there slightly later, um, but in, in the the early fifties, said um, Butler as chairman would play a very active role. He would come into the research department, which at that point was located in Old Queen Street, separate from uh, the party headquarters at Central Office, and hold what Peter Tapsell said were the most delightful chats, a bit like an Oxford tutorial, and they would they would discuss ideas uh, as, well, as well as the, the practical application of those. He was also um, very influenced by his uh, uncle, Sir Geoffrey Butler, who had been a, a Member of Parliament and, and a Don at Cambridge, who'd written in 1914, a book called The Tory Tradition, which tried to sketch out some of the philosophy of conservatism. They looked at sort of great Tory heroes, um, Bolingbroke and Burke and Disraeli, uh, and, and Geoffrey Butler had, had published this book, which unfortunately, because it was published on the eve of the First World War, never really made as much of a, a splash as Rab uh, felt it ought to have done. And he was, after 1945, very keen to, uh, to to set out an, an equivalent text, and he, he called it. We, we need a sort of Koran of the party, or a Baedeker of conservatism. And uh, he encouraged Quinton Hogg to write the case for conservatism for for, for Penguin. Uh, so he 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 was interested in first principles. What you know, why why should people be on the centre right? And you know, in in the face of the first majority socialist government and 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 a, and a crushing landslide defeat. That was actually a rather important exercise. So it, you know, it started for, for Butler with philosophy and first principles. And as you said, the Conservative Research Department at that time was um, separate from Conservative Central Office. Um, it was based in a different building. Um, Lord Walton was um, party chairman from 1946, and we've spoken to uh, Michael Kandaya about um, Walton's role. Um, he and Butler weren't exactly bosom buddies, were they? There was a bit no. of tension there. Yes, and, and, and Wilson was, wasn't keen to pay the bills for the, the enlarged research department, I mean, which actually, it was enlarged in every sense. It expanded into number 34, Old Queen Street, as well as 24. It had, it had an annex and all you know, the, the, the staff numbers went up and Wilson was, uh, was a businessman, uh, a very successful one, but not a politician. Uh, he wasn't a party member when, when, uh, when Churchill enlisted him uh, even to become party chairman and you know, went on his membership drive but he, he was he was learning the conservative party whereas rab had had grown up in it you think with his uncle being an mp and um uh you know, be, be, being a lifelong conservative so they, they 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 had very different styles and approaches but butler was also a wily politician he he because crd was located elsewhere and he was able he had the power to hire the people he wanted. He had a, you know, a very trusted uh, director in, in Michael Clark. Um, he 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 was able to sort of build up a little a little power base. Uh, and of course, it was 
suited to the work he'd done a, a bit in the war with the 44 Education Act. He was much more involved in, in policy making than than any other ministers during during the wartime when policy making for obvious reasons was was largely paused. The, the 1944 Education Act stands out from the the Second World War years um, as a as, as an unusual example of politicians thinking to the future after after the conflict. And Butler was very involved in that role as uh, as chairman of um, CRD in in policy making. Um, the party's sort of policy program as it developed over that time uh, was the kind of series of charters. Um, and there's some sort of level of doubt about how much um, Churchill, as leader of the party, was actually involved in that process. You would expect now that the leader of a political party would be uh, heavily involved in driving the, the policy agenda and running the uh, policy process. Um, it wasn't quite like that with Churchill. He was rather an absentee leader. Did, did Butler and, um, and CRD have pretty much a free hand to be developing policy during that period? Uh, yeah, I mean, Ch- Churchill was a, was a useless leader of the opposition. Uh, he, he wasn't even in the country for long periods of time. He was off painting or, or writing his history of the Second World War, which he you know, wanted both for posterity and for financial reasons. I mean, he, he made a lot of money uh, writing and publishing them. So he was much more interested in that than in rebuilding the Conservative Party after the defeat of 45, which he still smarted from. Uh, and of course, in, in 45, the, the policy prospectus of the Conservative Party was famously as short as Mr. Churchill's declaration of policy to the electors. It was all hung around him personally and an expectation of a vote of gratitude, which never came. So Churchill wasn't interested in this and handed it all over gladly uh, to Butler, who was this sort of Donish figure who was interested in it, uh, so that he could go off painting and writing and uh, and, and recovering from from the defeat. Uh, there was also an impetus from the party grassroots, who who were agitated at the the, the lack of answer to well, what do you stand for, what are you going to do, and it was at the nineteen forty six party conference that the, there was a there was a motion pattern in, in the days when party conferences passed motions and. And they had to be listened to at least nominally. The party members passed a motion saying, we, we want a statement of policy. We want to know what we believe in. Particularly important when you've got a, an ideological socialist government doing significant things like building a, a, a welfare state and the creating national health service and, and, and doing that from a sort of philosophical uh, standpoint. Uh, so in '46, the, the party conference passed passed this this motion, and uh, that was what led to the Industrial Charter. That was the the answer to the uh, to the grassroots of a statement of policy, and it was the first of a number of policies. It was an agricultural charter, a charter for women, a charter for Wales and Monmouthshire uh, as well. And they, they 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 sketched out some some areas of the party's approach in detail, but they were they were quite impressionistic documents rather than rather than detailed which which is sensible you know it, it was still fairly early in that in that parliament but it were they were a an attempt to set out a bit of philosophy but also build inroads into key sectors of the electorate that the party needed to win back and that was an exercise you see many years later with david cameron and his his policy challenge in subgroups that he that he set up in when he became leader in, in 2005. So they, they were both intellectual and electoral. And you, you talked there about the 
impressionistic sort of aspect of of these charters it is notable that the person to whom Churchill said my, my favorite favorite quote about needing to be a, a lighthouse not a shop window uh, that he said that to Butler of course about the manifesto so there is that sort of strategic issue that oppositions even now face about how much detail do you want to go into or whether you should just be offering a, a sort of guiding light as it were but the, the, the strategic challenge and the policy challenge for the party over this period was really to how how they responded to this socialist government and the measures it was putting into place and that was quite a, a difficult thing to to do you've got a a majority labor government putting in some quite um, significant socialist policies and you'd expect the conservative party to fight tooth and nail against it and that didn't really happen and the party's journey from 45 to 51 was was one really of of accommodation and, and reaching a sort of um, acceptance of this consensus. That was quite significant. I mean, how did that come about? Yes, well, I think it came about because of the scale of defeat in, in 45. Uh, Ian MacLeod, um, you know, uh, at the time said, you know, we must remember the customer is always right. Um, we, this is what people have voted for. And in, well, it's, it's kind of like what Keir Starmer was saying the other day about um, the, the fact that um, if you lose an election in a democracy, then you deserve to lose. Yeah, it's always yeah, that yeah. thought, isn't it? Yes, exactly. If you don't listen to the message the electorate have, have, have given you, uh, then they're going to have to shout it louder again and again. So the Conservative Party after 45 was was much more willing to listen than, than perhaps it has been after other similar defeats at different points in its history. And I think also the experience of the war, it, you know, it was a total war with, 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 you know, with a command economy, uh, lots of the senior figures had been involved in, in that. So they, they weren't as averse to the, the power of the state being used. Uh, and Butler particularly, who the Education Act had, you know, had worked on a big statist policy. He was also fairly centrist and, and broad brush in, in, in his politics. He was he was pragmatic rather than ideological and you know the sort of the what people now think of uh, as conservatism post Thatcher was still many years in the future. It you know it, it wasn't unusual for, for conservatives to believe in the power of the state. And Actually, from in, under the, the Chamberlain governments as well, there were the, the you know, quite a lot of work on the, the, the early development of a, of a Tory welfare state uh, the, in the beginnings of, uh, of the idea which, which led to the National Health Service. It's, uh, it, it wasn't that un-Tory a thing. But it was still quite a, a challenge to, to move the party to that position, and, and that was quite a significant um, thing to do. Do you think that the the way in which they were able to reassure the electorate was key to their success and it comes back to to this issue about whether um, oppositions win elections or governments lose them was it an exercise in reassuring the electorates that that the the gains of as, as they might have seen it of the of the Attlee government were not going to be overturned and that it's safe to vote conservative or was it more to do with simply a Labour government had run out of steam and uh, the opposition capitalised on that it's one of those questions which um which, which always is difficult to, to define but was was it something that was decisive in the conservative victory or, or was it more to do with Labour losing the election? Yes there was certainly a lot of accommodation with with what the Labour 
government had done and reassuring people that I mean, you know, that Labour famously put on their put on their posters, you know, the Labour created the health service, the Tories voted against it, and, and they've tried that attack line <laughs> at every general election right up until last year's. You know, and the, the Conservative Party uh, you know constantly has to reassure people that the NHS is safe in its hands, uh, indeed as it has been for most of <laughs> uh, its life um, under Conservative governments. But uh, so, so there, there was a there was an effort to reassure people that a Conservative government would would keep some of the things that they uh, that the Attlee government had done that, that that were popular, and there was an effort as well to, to enlist the party membership. As you say, Butler was keen to make sure that party members were equipped to go on the doorstep, uh, speak at public meetings, and, and 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 tell people what the Tories stood for. So he, uh, through the Conservative Political Centre, the CPC, he was engaged in what he called the, the two-way movement of ideas. He let party members send their ideas in and he used the the responses to to local cpc groups to to proselytize and to educate party members so that they could be become effective salesmen in their in their local area and through things like the the campaign guide which um was revamped and, and made very important people were given policy details to get to go on the doorstep and and, and talk to people uh, but I, I think i think you're right there, there was also an element of the, the after government toward, towards the end running out of steam as you say certainly falling out with its uh, in, internally and that's where you know churchill who by that point had um had a break written his memoirs done some painting uh was was you know was a bit hungrier for seizing some opportunities politically in westminster and particularly after the very narrow win in 1950, it was clear that another general election was probably coming sooner rather than later. So the party remained on a, on a war footing. And that's where the sort of, I think, the early, the early tensions between Walton and Churchill and Butler, it all came together wonderfully well. Walton had, had his large membership drive, so there was a, a larger party membership. They were much more clued up thanks to the policy work that, that Butler had done. And Churchill had, had regained a bit of his, his vim and vigour and was, and was leading, leading from the front. And finally, obviously you're a disciple of, of Butler, um, but, but in, in terms of his place in, in history, I think it's fair to say that most historians would regard the 45 to 51 period of opposition as a model in how you do it and how you recover from that kind of a defeat. How central was Butler to that? Has his role been overstated? Um, you, you're clearly um, of the view that Churchill was, as you said, a fairly useless leader of the opposition for most of the time that he was he was doing that job and clearly had no real um, liking for it. I, I mean, objectively, how, how central was, was Butler um, to that recovery? And does it provide a, a model for, for future oppositions as to how you recover from that kind of a defeat? Uh, yes, I, I, I think he was, was was absolutely central to it. Certainly, he sped up that process. It is remarkable, as I say, that the Conservative Party went from the crushing defeat of 1945 to being within five seats of victory um, at the next election five years later, and then back in government uh, you know, a year after that. Uh, Butler wasted no time in accepting the verdict of the electorate, listening to the instruction from the people of the United Kingdom and having the the intellectual and political confidence to go back to square one in first principles and to, to start painting the picture, impressionistic at first and then filling in the details as as the election grew nearer. And that, that is exactly the right way to to react to, to an electoral defeat of, of the scale of 45 or 
97. Uh, I think were it not for Butler, the party would have recovered mechanically. Uh, the machine would have been strengthened. Wilton Bullard would have you know, done all his work in, in campaigning and membership, but people would have had no no story to tell and and in politics and elections the, the message really matters and it was Butler who who set out that, that direction and it was a direction which the, the party followed successfully for the period of government uh, throughout the 1950s. Splendid thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much. Lord Parkinson there talking to me about his political hero and a significant figure in uh, this opposition period, Rab Butler. Now finally in this Churchill extravaganza, looking at the Conservative opposition under his nominal leadership uh, from 45 uh, to 51, I thought it was about time that we spent a bit of time um, looking at the man himself and some of the personal aspects uh, of him during this period of time. And to do that, I was very pleased to be joined by uh, Catherine Carter. Catherine is a scholar of, uh, of Churchill, but is currently uh, working as the curator of Chartwell in Kent, Churchill's former country home. For anyone who's studied Churchill or uh, read anything about him, you'll be familiar with the fact that Chartwell was one of his, the great loves of his life. And I think what's interesting as well is that when we talk about Churchill in, in exile, uh, exiled from power, there are really two periods of his life to which that can really uh, refer. And the first of those was before the war, before he became Prime Minister, in the 1930s, when he was acting very much in opposition uh, to his own Conservative leadership as he held them to account and pressed them to uh, rearm and to respond more proactively to the, uh, the rise of Hitler. Then the second period, as we've been discussing with our previous two guests, was his time after he was ejected from office in 1945, his time uh, in opposition. And during both of those periods of time, the internal opposition period and then the time as leader of the opposition, uh, he spent a lot of time at Chartwell. So I think it was appropriate uh, we spoke to Catherine to find out a bit more about uh, this house and the role it played during those uh, periods of opposition and I began by asking her about the first of those and how central Chartwell was uh, to his period in the wilderness in the 1930s. Chartwell was pivotal to the role that Churchill played in the 1930s. He'd actually bought it a few years earlier and moved in uh, at the same point in time when he became Chancellor of the Exchequer so he had a few years there whilst holding very high office but then by the 1930s, circumstances have changed considerably. He has diminishing influence. And unfortunately, over the course of the early 30s in particular, he campaigns heavily against Indian independence. And then as the decade goes on, he is in favour of Edward VIII's efforts regarding the abdication crisis. And so by the time that he is desperately trying to raise awareness of German rearmament, which is what Chartwell is probably most famous for in most people's eyes, that campaign against um, appeasement, against complacency uh, regarding German rearmament, that really kicks off in the mid-1930s at Chartwell. And Chartwell is really the place where he is culminating all this information, all this intelligence that's being brought to him um, by a very wide range of individuals, some on the record, others not, 
And it's through the information brought to him at Chartwell that he is able to create the speeches he starts to make in the Commons to campaign against appeasement. And just to speak a little bit about the House itself, um, he, he bought it not so much for um, the House, but for where it was, really, didn't he? It was uh, something else that appealed to him. I'd say that the view that the House affords was the main reason that Churchill bought Chartwell. Uh, for anyone who's been to Chartwell, you get a view not only across the beautiful gardens there, but out towards the Weald of Kent itself. So this fantastic panoramic vista and given that Churchill by that point had been painting for a decade, his artist's eye immediately fell in love with that view. And in terms of convenience, at that point in time, it was less than an hour to Westminster. So that made it an easy journey. And lastly, his childhood nanny, a lady called Mrs Everest, she was from Kent and she planted a seed very early on that Kent was this wonderful county to live. So um, I think it's those three things combined, far more so than the house itself, which is why he bought Chartwell. And um, his, his working sort of methods were infamous um, and still are, that um, he, he had a, a pretty idiosyncratic style. Um, was that in evidence um, from, from those sort of earlier years when he was uh, in those wilderness years? Um, we hear stories about him working in bed and uh, and um, holding sort of quite late night speech writing sessions and things. Were those habits sort of formed early and did we see those in evidence at Chartwell? By the time Churchill moves to Chartwell, those habits that you referenced were very much ingrained. So any secretaries, for example, starting at Chartwell, uh, working with the Churchills, it was made apparent very early on that it was a tough daily schedule because for Churchill it was never a solo operation. He either had researchers or one of an army of secretaries desperately trying to keep up in shorthand to his dictation as he strode up and down the study and like you say that could be until two three in the morning working in the study and then he would go to bed and wake up early the next morning but work from bed probably to about 10 11 o'clock ish um, so a very uh, unusual working pattern, but one that worked for him. And the fact that he could also squeeze in an afternoon nap meant that he felt he got a day and a half's worth of productivity out of a typical 24-hour cycle. So it certainly worked for him. And during that period of sort of the wilderness years, as we now know them, um, this kind of internal opposition, as you said, there was quite a lot of comings and goings at Chartwell, some of them sort of secret, um, people who uh, wouldn't have wanted, wide, wanted it widely known that they were there. There is a visitor's book in your collection, isn't there? Um, do we know whether everyone was recorded in that or was uh, were some of these visits so secret they weren't even recorded there? The visitor's book at Chartwell is it's a fantastic document. It's an incredible record. But what it is, is a record of those who signed the visitor's book. There are a considerable number who we know who did not sign for various reasons. Um, for example, Desmond Morton, who was the um, head of the Industrial Intelligence Unit, was one of the people feeding information to Churchill during his wilderness years. And as you can imagine, someone in industrial intelligence was very mindful of where it was recorded he had been. Um, but also you've got fascinating figures like you've got Einstein visiting 
and we know that he visited because there's photographic evidence, but he didn't sign the visitor's book because at that point in time, um, he was almost a, a wanted man, as it were, given the escalation of anti-Semitism in, in Germany at that point in time. So sometimes it was a deliberate way of concealing one's visit. Um, unfortunately, we've also been made aware by Lady Soames, Churchill's youngest daughter, that sometimes there were just periods of time where it happened to not be out. So like, like all of us, we might just forget something. And so there were instances where some were omitted more through human error than through intention to conceal. Um, and so after the war, when um, he unexpectedly, uh, to him certainly, and to many people, lost the election, he then becomes leader of the opposition. He loses number 10 Downing Street, but he did by that time have a, a house in, in London. Um, I wonder if you could say a bit about Hyde Park Gate, um, which was his, his house then. Did he have that immediately after the war or did that come later? It came slightly later, but not, not a very long time afterwards. And it would tend to be the case then that that would be their residence more sort of Monday to Friday. And then Charles would be for the weekends uh, or parliamentary recess indeed. Mm. Um, having that base in London, you would imagine would be to sort of remain geographically close to party politics as leader of the opposition, as you say. But he actually didn't plough that much effort into party management at that point. By that point, firmly having the role of an elder statesman, uh, his focus was very much on international affairs and diplomacy. So in that regard, having a London base was more helpful for that side of things rather than running the party. Mm. And it's been said, and some of our other guests uh, on the podcast have, um, have alluded to the fact that he was, he was rather an absentee leader of the opposition. It wasn't a role that he relished, was it? I think it's safe to say that he was devastated by the outcome of the 1945 election. Um, he had, of course, been a great wartime prime minister, but he wanted to be a peacetime prime minister. And so I think that there was uh, perhaps a bit of licking one's wounds at that point in time, because I don't think he was prepared for the, that election defeat. At that point, like I said, focus went very much internationally, and he saw that as far more important than leading the party itself. And for Churchill, it's really interesting, if you look at those years in opposition, he references there being almost like a Venn diagram of three circles where he sees that Britain's focus should be. And the three circles are the English-speaking world, so a big part of that being Anglo-American relations, for example, um, Europe and the Commonwealth. And he thought that Britain should be leading by having a sort of finger in each of these pies, as it were, Whereas the Labour government were understandably far more focused on domestic issues, rebuilding um, the economy, uh, housing. And so Churchill, yes, was leader of the opposition, but he was far more devoted even then to foreign affairs and international relations than the domestic issue. And a lot of his time was taken up with writing his wartime memoirs. Um, so to do that he obviously gave him something to do um, but uh, it also required being Churchill um, a lot of secretaries so again we have uh, a return um, to the sort of pre-war um, modes of working I assume that um, the secretaries came back to Chartwell as well as Churchill. 
essentially the operation at Chartwell resurrected just as it had been before the war, after the war, but with the focus by that point very different. So it was no longer Churchill being this sort of lone figure in politics and trying to persuade the government that they should be preparing for war. By this point he, he had been vindicated and was indulging in his hobbies and interests, which of course writing was a huge part of his life. His uh, six-volume history of the Second World War went on to be an international bestseller uh, and it was written in those years immediately after the war. And we're very fortunate at Chartwell to have just opened the Secretary's Office, which is a new room, it's not been opened to the public before. And part of what I did in preparing that room was interview those Secretaries of Swinstons who were still with us and their recollections of, of life in that room was just incredible. The, the thick skin they had to have and the hours that they worked and their dedication and loyalty to Churchill all really come through in these oral histories that you can listen to now when you visit Chartwell. And I think as well, with reference to Churchill's writing, one thing that's really interesting is he was actually considered for the Nobel Prize in Literature far earlier than he got it. He was being considered for it uh, in the late 1940s, but they decided to hold off on giving him that honour until he'd finished his History of the Second World War, because they wanted that to feature in, within the, the justification for the award. Um, so that's why he didn't actually get it until 1953. And given those sort of interests that he had, um, he was very seized with the so the twin aims, firstly, of sort of well, world, world peace um, in its own right and sort of uh, Soviet Union warning of the dangers there, for example, and, um, and Britain's place in the world uh, and preserving what he thought that, um, that the Second World War was, was fighting for, which was Britain's sort of preeminence as a great power. Do you think that given that he had those years of in which Britain's position was changing significantly whilst he was in opposition, that that shaped his approach to what he wanted to do when he, he got back into government? Undoubtedly, what he experienced in was in opposition in terms of international relations influenced him as in his second premiership. Um, I think, for example, his interest in Europe moving forward, and he was interestingly in the 50s awarded something called the Charlemagne Prize, mm. which is for... Um, Estolling values pertaining to European unity, which is uh, an interesting award, <laughs> particularly in the current climate. Uh, of course, you can argue both ways. Some people say that he was wanting Europe tonight and whether Britain should be in that equation or not is a different matter. But he certainly was very, very keen to undertake any efforts to ensure that another world war couldn't possibly take place. So that was a huge amount of his focus, which had been the case during opposition and continued into his premiership. And I think as well, the focus on um, what was happening with the Soviet Union equally translated from opposition to leadership. So in 1946, he makes his Iron Curtain speech, which is credited as having sort of brought universal awareness of, of, of that looming crisis in his eyes. And so that remained a priority for him once he became Prime Minister in 1951. So you can certainly see that the seeds of his international policies during the Second Premiership are very much born out of his time in opposition. Yes, indeed. Um, and just going back to his working methods, we, we, we spoke about it a little bit earlier, but 
in interviewing the the secretaries who worked with him and getting their testimony um, you must have come up with some some brilliant anecdotes and and stories from them um, can you give us a flavor of sort of what some of them told you about his working habits do you know what it's it's really interesting because they they all obviously have their own stories and anecdotes but there's a few universal themes across the board which come across everyone and it is their tireless dedication to him and their faith in him and that they would do absolutely anything for him he wasn't someone without a temper though he he could sometimes become quite frustrated i think one of my favorite ones is there's a device that churchill used which we would probably call a single hole punch but he would call a clock uh, because of the noise it made fair enough and so there's one secretary where he asks them to go get clock and this secretary was a little bit new, didn't really want to admit that she didn't quite understand what he was asking for, and found a multi-volume history by, by a writer called Klopp. And so brought this huge pile of books to him and just sort of looked completely confused. Like, how could you possibly have thought that's what I wanted? So he, he yes, he, he could be a bit of a taskmaster. He had very, very high standards. But the people who worked for him wanted to meet those standards. You know, they, they were in no way work shy and they understood the importance of his work and were willing to devote all the hours God sends, sometimes even sort of staying in cottages on site because it was far too late for them to go home by the time they'd finished. So it's an incredible array of, of both personal stories, but also how their stories translate into world affairs, which is what we can now share in that new room at Chartwell. And how many of them were there? Because um, I, I gather that in uh, at High Park Gate in London, they actually bought the next door house in order to provide office accommodation for all these these staff. Um, I mean, how much room do they take up in Chartwell? It sounds like he had a, a you know a, a quite a, a large retinue of secretaries working at any one time. Yes, and it wasn't just his, actually, I should say as well, that um, Lady Churchill also had her own secretary, sometimes secretaries. You'd have, for example, some that were more London-focused and some that were more Chartwell-focused. So the Chartwell side of things, when in opposition, was much more focused on writing, as I said, but also the sort of domestic side of things, you know, booking travel and, and all that sort of thing. Whereas once he is in power again, the nature of that work flips massively and you're getting suddenly a lot more correspondence with other political figures and arrangements for meetings. So it, I'd say, yes, the nature of the work changes. And in terms of answering your question regarding space, at Chartwell, there is one pretty sizable room that is the secretary's office, but actually their work, of course, would span the whole of the estate. So you could have one, for example, um, footing a ladder in the garden while Churchill's bricklaying, taking dictation whilst he's laying bricks. You could have one who was up in a study at two, three in the morning, sort of coping with this cloud of cigar smoke and desperately trying to, to either write in shorthand or a noiseless typewriter, which became his preferred technology after the war, uh, enabling him to concentrate. Because if you imagine typewriters are quite clack, 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 clack. Um, so he was a big fan of that new technology, which meant he could have it typed up live almost. And in terms of number, it was typically three or four across both elements of operations, across political, personal, Chartwell, Hyde Park Gate. Um, but that could ebb and flow over the course of time at Chartwell, depending on how much work there was to do. And 
I know that uh, you've watched it and um, it's one of my favourite films, um, uh, The Gathering Storm, which was stars Albert Finney as, as Winston Churchill. Filmed at Chartwell, so if people haven't uh, haven't been to Chartwell, they can they can see it sort of dressed in sort of period settings there as well. Celia Imery appears as a secretary uh, in that. I thought he said after lunch. He did. He changed his mind. I do wish he wouldn't do that. I'd arrange to take the girls into Westrum to buy some shoes. Heaven knows when I'll get another opportunity. Mr. Churchill. Ah, Mrs. B. At last. Good morning. Not much to do, or very little time in which to do it. I uh, will revise this speech and uh, go on to the second chapter on the way up to London. Today? Anything wrong with that? No. No, of course not, Mr. Churchill. And bring my notes from the Battle of Blenheim. Having seen that film and having seen that portrayal and now having taken the sort of testimony from the real thing, from secretaries um, who worked there, have you looked back at that to sort of compare whether that was actually a, an authentic portrayal? Do you know what? That's a really good question. And one of the things I've done in curating the new secretary's office is I've had a replica version of the, the television that the Churchills had in the 1950s. And uh, I've made it so that plays on repeat um, a combination of footage of Mrs. P played by Celia Rimery in Gathering Storm and also Lily James playing um, Elizabeth Nell in Darkest Hour more recently. And the reason I feel happy putting those into that context is because genuinely they are really accurate in terms of the, the breadth of work involved, but also just how adaptable they had to be. You know, the fact that there were times when dictation was being taken in the car. Like I said, it could be randomly walking around the garden that Churchill needs um, a correspondence quickly writing up. It could be uh, in the study at Chartwell. Obviously, it's more kind of intuitive setting for that work. But they had to be ready at a moment's notice and there wasn't time to make mistakes because often things were being prepared on the way to the thing that Churchill needed them for. And, but there were usually finishing touches by that point, I should say. Churchill is someone who um, was said to put an hour of effort into a minute of speech. So it would usually be those final revisions that were being done on, on route. But um, I think that both of those actresses really did represent wonderfully not just the nature of the work they were doing but the incredible characters that these secretaries were every single one of the churchill secretaries both winston's and clementine's that i've met i've just found to be the most remarkable funny thick-skinned women and it's been such a pleasure to get to tell their stories at the churchill's home wonderful and um, for people who haven't visited and um, might now um, want to go and see uh, Chartwell, what are your opening arrangements at the moment and how can people come and see it? So in order to visit Chartwell at the moment, I would strongly recommend pre-booking, which can be done on our website. And that pre-booking gets you access to the site and then you can upgrade your ticket once you're with us to see uh, Churchill's house and or studio. And at the moment, we're open the house from one o'clock onwards. And if you particularly want to see the secretary's room, that is open Mondays to Fridays. But of course, the whole site is fascinating and you learn so much about the Churchill's family lives there when visiting. So uh, I will look forward to lots of your listeners joining us at Chartwell. Brilliant. Thanks very much for joining us, Catherine. Thank you. Catherine Carter there speaking to me about Winston Churchill and Chartwell. 
and I certainly recommend that you take her up on that invitation to go and visit. It's a fascinating place and really gives you a sense uh, of Churchill uh, the man. And seeing as I've uh, plugged Chartwell and allowed Catherine to uh, promote that new exhibition they have there on the secretary's room, uh, I should, for the sake of balance, also uh, thank uh, my other guests and uh, give a plug to some of their activities as well. Um, Michael Kandaya, who we spoke to earlier, um, is publishing later on this month um, through Oxford University Press uh, the Diaries and Letters of Lord Bolton from 1940 to 1945, the, the wartime period, and the subtitle of that is War on the British Home Front. Um, as Michael was saying in our interview, uh, he's been studying Lord Walton for decades now, uh, since his very first uh, university uh, research, and uh, uh, I think I'm looking forward to, to reading um, these edited diaries. Um, and uh, Lord Parkinson uh, is, as I mentioned, the director of the Conservative History Group, uh, and I highly recommend uh, that you uh, join them. You don't need to be a Conservative. Uh, you can join them uh, to receive their, uh, their journal um, of historical articles. Uh, but also, if you're on Twitter, um, they're very active on Twitter, uh, with, the, with the Twitter handle at ConHistGroup, um, and uh, you can find them online at conservativehistory.org.uk. So my thanks to all of my guests uh, for taking the time to speak to me for the podcast. Uh, thank you for getting to the end of this rather epic one. I hope you'll agree that it was uh, worth the wait and also uh, worth uh, the time we've spent talking about this topic. If you've enjoyed it, please do share it uh, with other people and give us a good rating on whichever podcast app uh, it is that you use. Make sure you're also subscribed so that you are notified when the next podcast um, goes up. And do also uh, follow us on our various social media platforms. But for the moment, thanks for joining me. Look after yourselves and I'll see you again soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. I think you've got to do what you can with it. <laughs> now, try this. It's just an <coughs> experiment with my voice. Yes. You see, this is just all private. This. Yes, quite so. Wasn't that better?